0: check in the test in the one two three i got a snickerdoodle cookie for me why
1: does your lights your light scott storm
0: he's the cookie man
1: your lighting looks so good
0: brought me a cookie in his dirty COVID hands
1: all right i'm going to mute you
0: please i've been waiting for somebody to do that
2: walt disney's magic kingdom disneyland is growing every day. ladies and gentlemen boys and girls disneyland the happiest place
0: on Earth. It's time to throw down, Have you thought about a visit to
2: Disneyland during your vacation? You can waste time with your friends when your chores are done.
0: Disneyland is the happiest place
2: on Earth. Join the happy people
0: of
1: all ages. Yes, there's more fun at Disneyland in Anaheim. The happiest country on Earth. Hey everyone, welcome to Bob's List and Banthas, a podcast about Disneyland, Star Wars, and all the other things that Disney Company owns that we love. On this episode, we get the opportunity to sit down with Disney historian, entertainment journalist, and all-around great guy Jim Hill to talk about his experience covering theme parks for an entire career, the things that he's loved, the things he's looking forward to doing, and... You know, thoughts on Star Wars, Galaxy's Edge, Tron, the Black Hole, all sorts of stuff. My name is Scott Storm, and with me is my co-host, the turkey leg to my Mickey pretzel, Aaron, Absolute Humidity Robbins. Aaron, episode 25! Is it 25? It's 25. Fantastic, and it's a good one,
0: having just recorded it and and time-traveling back here to do the intro. It's a fantastic episode. Thank you for having me on.
1: You're actually uh, just exposing our production... Yes, uh, magic, behind the scenes. Tr- magic trickery. That was
0: a behind the scenes thing for our listeners. Oh, wow. Are we doing a little uh, banter before we get into the Jim Hill interview or are we just going right into it? I mean, heck, at this point in time, we might as well get sleeping bags and just sleep inside the podcasting studio because we're not going to be allowed back in our houses. I
1: feel like we've been in this studio for what feels like 72 hours.
0: It's been an epic day. We got kicked out of our other podcasting student we by did. track and field stars. We tried to record next to Beethoven's piano, which didn't get work because it got sucked into a space-time continuum. Mm-hmm. Then we ended up in in what can only be described as the house. most echoey room of all time. <laughs> Ever decorated by uh, if Ikea explode. I don't know. If you shove the mini Ikea into a watermelon, it's, that's the studio
1: where I was going to say, I was going to say, it's like as if, if Ikea ate a rocket pop <laughs> Yes, exactly. and then immediately exploded, <laughs> yeah. yep. that's what this room
0: looks like. It sounds like, doesn't smell like, but definitely looks like as well.
1: The most interesting thing about this room is that this room is supposed to be Fine tuned for professional audio recording. Yeah, this is a high end performance studio with
0: just there. I mean, I'm looking at six boom stands, four, four microphones. So micros-
1: many boom stands. Yeah. And it sounds and, terrible. And I'm so yet, sorry,
0: guys. The episode sounds great. I did a great job. But, you
1: did a great job. But I but will say, wow. the, the audio fidelity of me being inside my blanket fort sounds better than yeah, this room sure. that, again, was created for the purposes of recording audio.
0: Yeah. You guys think we should put a lot of sharp corners and concrete in it? Like that
1: bounces sound around, right? right? Oh, you want it to be as echoey as possible. Oh, we thought you wanted to skip audio rocks. (laughs)
0: just it just jumps around uh but this is
1: what you get i mean if you listen if you come up against a bunch of track stars and they're in between you and your podcast studio you run you run the other way (laughs) but not nearly as fast as they run that's right well
0: get ready for a fantastic interview
1: hey we're gonna take a uh quick break and when we come back uh, we're gonna be talking with jim hill we can't wait for you to listen If you've ever had a question about how a ride show or attraction has come to be at a Disney park? The chances are that this week's guest not only has the answer, but about 20 years of context to that answer. His name is synonymous with having the inside scoop on what's happening in the Disney company, what's in development, what's being considered, and what's been scrapped. He's also the creative co-host behind more podcasts than you can shake a stick at, including looking at Lucasfilm, Marvel Us Disney, Fine Tuning, and the beloved Disney Dish with Len Testa. And we are thrilled to sit down and chat with him tonight, the prolific, the terrific Jim Hill. Jim, thanks so much for joining us.
2: I am never going to be able to live up to that intro. No, so. you won't. Okay. No, you Everyone, won't, but that's okay. We give you something to aspire standing. to. So, yeah, lower your expectations. <laughs> it ain't happening. Okay.
1: So Jim, we're just so thankful that you uh, you had the opportunity to to come and, and speak with us. Uh, I, like I said to you before, I have been listening to you and Len for several years. Uh, we've been watching your YouTube videos and things like that. And, and the thought has often occurred to me: How does a guy like Jim Hill become a guy like Jim Hill? Uh, you you are, like I said, synonymous with covering theme parks, covering entertainment, and but you're different again than a lot of entertainment journalists out there because of this bent that you have toward covering. Disney and Universal and the history behind both of those companies, when it relates to theme park and theme park going. So, uh, but before we get into sort of how you got into that, my first question is: What is Jim Hill at ten years old like? Where where did you grow up? What were the things that you were interested? In? What did you do? And 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 take us there.
2: Um, Jim Hill at ten years old is living in a very small town in Massachusetts, about as far away as you can get from a Disney theme park. Uh-huh. Um, but Jim Hill is a prolific watcher of the wonderful world of – well, it was first the wonderful world of color. And then after Wall Pass it became the wonderful world of Disney. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, but every Sunday night, uh, I would be in front of the television and it, it hoping that it was going to be either an animation episode or one that took you behind the scenes of the parks. I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, the, the dog that learned how to play a banjo or whatever, <laughs> you know, they they, they, Fascinating. they had to fill 40, 40 slots a year. So some of them were, were kind of duds. Um, but, uh, you know, it was then. It was, you know, Walt showing off the dinosaurs for the 64 World's Fair, or uh, for that matter, you know, reports, you know, they used to do, updates about uh, construction at Walt Disney World yeah. about how you know in seventy one this brand new, you know Vacation Kingdom was going to open up in the swamps of Central Florida.
0: Talk to me about when when you were seeing Disneyland on TV. Is that is that some place you want to go to? And that's what you're very excited about. You want to work there someday. You want to create a Disneyland in Boston. What what is that like for you?
2: Well, you know, again, uh, interesting question because we actually had. Uh, a Disneyland outside of Boston. We had Pleasure Island. We had uh, C.V. Wood, the first uh, vice president of Disneyland. Uh, When Walt fired him like three or four months after the park opened up, uh, C.V. took his Rolodex and all of his contacts uh, out the door on a Friday and Monday morning had set up Marco Engineering, a company to, (laughs) you know, know, he (laughs) found himself as the master builder of Disneyland.
1: Yeah, like any good executive would, of course.
2: The... um. You know, the, the Disneyland plan. It was like, okay, so we're so far, you know, instead of so far out of outside of LA, we're so far outside of Boston. We are at the, you know, a nice piece of property that's affordable at a crossroads of major highways. Um, he did the entire, he, he hell, the, the architect of Tomorrowland designed much of the park. Um, the only thing he didn't factor in was the shorter the far shorter season for Boston they could only <laughs> really be up and running just a minor
1: thing just a minor thing to account for minor
2: thing you know it's somebody who worked closely with Walt who thought he had the formula and didn't but yeah i mean I, you know that that's we had one and in fact i, I visited it as a child and it was fascinating cuz For example, instead of the Jungle Cruise, they had a Moby Dick ride, really, uh, with a giant mechanical whale that came out of the water. And I mean, seriously, if if Google uh, Pleasure Island, Boston, and you'll get all of these weird, you know, home movies of this park.
0: So growing up, you, you'd visited that and you'd seen that on TV. Is that when you're starting to connect with uh, with the magic of Disney or theme parks? When does that become really interesting to you? Like, I, I think I think this is going to be a part of my life for a while.
2: Well, I, you know, my dad, uh, summer of 1970, decided. You know, you uh, know, because again, we were all the right age that so we could all fit in a car. Uh, he took us cross country wow. and. Uh, we actually made it out to Disneyland That's uh, that summer. It was the year after Haunted Mansion opened. Uh, and what was kind of interesting is that I, I kept the trip diary right up until we got to Disneyland. And then so the trip cool. diary stopped because cool. it's like, hey, I got where I wanted. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> screw the old Grand Canyon. You know, I just, you know, that's, I'm, I'm done. Uh, but I also remember we were days later... And I'm sitting at a picnic table. and My dad comes over and throws down a newspaper, and there on the front page is the photos of the yippies. Oh yeah, um, yeah. who yeah. would shut down Disneyland? And you know they they'd had to send all the you know they they had all of the highway uh, patrolmen lining uh, you know Main Street to to march people out. And I was just looking at it like, oh my god, we you know first of all, you know this could have been us. You know if they showed up another day. Um, but again, it was it was one of these things where it's like, what's the deal with that story? So
0: you kept a, a journal on your trip uh, across the United States out to Disneyland, and, and then,
2: uh, yeah, done. <laughs> just, and that's, it, you know, no journal, that's it. No more journal. No more writing. A happy guy. <laughs> well, that was my uh, question,
0: Jim. I was going to say, and then you you just started writing everything down, and investigating every little thing.
2: It's weird. I mean, some of this comes on the back of, for example, um, my you know my my dad gave us all money for one souvenir at Disneyland. And so the one souvenir that I bought was the storyteller album for the haunted mansion, which of course has a hat box ghost on it. Yeah. Like, oh, Wait a minute. I was on this ride. There was no hat ghost. And it's like, and I listen, I go home, I play the recording and here's little Ronnie Howard. Like, Oh my God, look, there's a guy with a heart going <laughs> in the box. And one of these things where it's like, well, what was that about? And yeah. so, that actually got me started on sort of the the you know the, the research end of it. It's like, well, what what was this? Why you know why did this turn up? You know, as part of you know, I mean, it's something they sold in the parks. It was clearly supposed to be part of the ride. It disappeared. You know what happened? And you know, so that trip, pet box ghost You know, the television show uh, just launched an obsession. I guess. Yeah.
0: What was your? Uh, it's so cool that I mean that your dad. Saved up, drove, gave you guys some money from it. It's such a it's such a cool story. It's, it's also
1: just a classic like Americana it thing. Feels right, traveling like, like across that, the country. That
0: cool story. What what was his? Do you remember any like what was his take on Walt on TV uh, on Disney? Was he a dad that was into that stuff, or just provided it as that type of American dad?
2: Well, I you know was kind of interesting because I I credit. Um, I credit my sense of humor to my mom, but I credit my storytelling to my dad because it would be one of those things where you're sitting in the backseat of the car, you know, driving someplace and, you know, just hectoring him with questions. And, you know, he knew enough about Disney and enough about filmmaking that, you know, it, it, you know, it, it was one of these things where it's like, okay, I want to learn more about this stuff. And so... You go to the library, you pull the books. But you have to remember that this is this is now 1970. I'm in high school by 73. You know, this is the era where the George Lucases and yeah. the Steven Spielbergs yeah. of the world you know, world are really stepping onto the, the you know the stage. And and it was a great time to you know to you know, sort of be starting as a fledgling entertainment writer, because frankly there were all these great stories.
1: S- so during that time. 71 happens and Walt Disney world opens and now suddenly a Disney park is a lot closer to you than it was before. Do you, uh, because this is sort of a, a coming of age period for you because you're in high school, does that drive a desire to go down to Orlando and see what that is? Does your family want to do that? Or d- does your family sort of take the opinion of we've seen that we've done it because we did it over in
2: Anaheim. You know, I was, uh, one of five kids and frankly, you know, parents looking to try to help, you know, five kids get into college. Money got tight during that sure. period. In fact, sure. it, you know, for example, when I when I, I went to high school in 73, um, we had a, a gentleman in charge of the AV department, uh, Joe Magnum, who wanted to launch a radio station. He needed to raise the money first. And so, you know, he, he tries to launch a film festival. And I, I remember sitting in the, the high school library as a freshman, and they, 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 they had the catalog from the Rank Corporation. And it's like, there are dozens of Disney films in here. In fact, geez, there's Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which I didn't see in theaters, mm. but just has become available. And I go, look, how about this? Let's, let's order a copy of Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And during February school vacation... We'll show this, but what we'll do is we'll paper all of the schools locally with, with flyers to the effect of, you know, Hey, you know, if you want something to do during February school vacation, we're going to be showing bed knobs and broomsticks up at the, uh, the high school and it's only a quarter admission. And so, you know, it's, so I'm standing there at, at 10 o'clock in the morning. We'd arranged for, uh, I want to say two showings that day all of these parents are pulling up with their station wagons full of children that they're sick of at home and (laughs) throwing them out. Here's a quarter, go see the movie, go away. (laughs) Um, We had so many kids we wound up doing, instead of two shows, three shows, we filled the space. So Joe Magnol throws the catalog at me and basically says, you're now in charge of the film festival. And it's (laughs) so every month,
0: the film festival sounds a little bit like a bootleg Disney movie theater, though.
2: <laughs> That's it, exactly. That's it, exactly. So the, I I got to go through the entire Disney catalog. I, and, you know, whenever Rank would put out a new Disney film, it's like, okay, we're going to show this one. And I handled the publicity. I, you know, I, I worked the prints and all that. And as a direct result, by the time I finished high school, I had seen, and again, this, this is before of VHS, you know, I had yeah. managed to see the entire Disney catalog because yeah. I, I went. Now, mind you, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like, hey, kids, we're showing Saludos Amigos. You really <laughs> want to see
1: this one? It's worth twenty five cents. Just trust me. That's right, twenty five. Yeah. And it's
2: just like that movie stuck. It's a comeback. Type. So is that is is
1: that what creates the bridge into you managing a, a movie theater?
2: Well, yeah, but but also that also made me that much more conversational. Yeah. I mean, I'd seen all of these movies. Anyway, yes, I end up uh, running a, a movie theater. and In fact, that's six months there. We got the opportunity to bid on Star Trek: The Motion Picture and the Black Hole. You know, just <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, I want the number one and the number two worst science fiction films ever made. <laughs> of and co- well, they, these are going to be the next Star Wars. How do we not book both of them? Oh, and that's that's the seriously, that's what it was. Yeah, of course,
1: what was your uh, what was your impression of? having the experience of being both at the magic kingdom and at disneyland uh did you do you feel a difference between the two other than size did you have a preference between the two
2: i you know the weird thing is i i admire the um, ambition of of walt disney world but di- you know disneyland uh, and again i'm i'm saying this having not been out to disneyland since uh, project pixie dust sure. where they did all of the work out of that opening of batu um, but you can actually you know that disneyland is more intimate uh it has a far stronger tie to walt um you know and in fact it's it's kind of interesting because walt you know i mean these days uh you know when you get the the temporary attraction that hangs around for 20 years. Yeah. You know, for me, it's, it's fascinating to look back at the, uh, you know, the first 10 years of Disneyland where Walt was like, eh, that's not good. That goes, yeah. you know, and yeah. we're going to change that. We're going to put, you know, and it's just sort of, it was his private train set and he put, you know, put them in, pulled them out. Uh, whereas now because Disney is a corporation, when they put things in, it's like, well, we'll consider pulling that out when we get a full return on investment.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, when we were uh, talking with Bob Gurr a couple weeks ago, one of the questions we posed to him was, you know, what do you believe gave you the, f- the freedom to create, collaborate, and fail? And mm-hmm. he basically said, well, because it wasn't about revenue. It, w- it was mm-hmm. never about revenue. It was all about just creating the thing that Walt saw in his head and helping mm-hmm. us achieve that, uh, which yeah. obviously is, you know, it's very different than, than what it is now.
2: I don't know. Absolutely. The, the interesting things is they have uh, a memo up from 73 where they're talking about the next 10 years worth of construction plans. And there's actually a section in the memo where they talk about, okay, so this is the stuff we're going to do for the parks. And then in the, the secondary category is non-revenue producing mm. projects mm-hmm. where it's literally we need to put a shade structure outside of small world because people are standing in the sun and dying. Uh, you know, or we need to put, you know, uh, an awning over the mad teacups because it's, you built it in Florida at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> <or we need laughs> yes. People drowned inside of their teacups. Right. But, but again, you know, that they, you know, by, you know, face it, and Walt had only been gone for, you know, less than eight years at that point, And that mindset had crept in. It's like, there's the stuff that makes revenue and there's the stuff that doesn't make the revenue. And, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and the revenue already was, was a priority of Disneyland.
1: For sure, for so, sure. Well, uh, Jim, I want to get into you, into your work covering the, the theme parks, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about whether or not you were working in a, in a movie theater or managing a movie theater or what your connection to movie theaters were when Star Wars came out in 1977.
2: You have to remember that, that Star Wars had only been released to, I want to say, 80 to 100 theaters in the country on its opening weekend. Uh, but my friend Jim Reiki... Uh, had gone the previous night, he had driven out to Worcester, Massachusetts, and seen it. Uh, Going to want to say at the showcase there, and he came back. He he came to uh, you know to our our graduation rehearsal, speaking in tongues. He just, <laughs> just <laughs> Death Star, the, 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 the trench, you know the, 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 the Tie Fighters, and it was like, what what are you talking about? Star Wars. You have to see Star Wars. So I I think. Did very next day after graduation, uh, you know, uh, finally drove over to Worcester myself to see what all the fuss was about. And you know, um, I honestly, in a weird sort of way, feel bad for kids today because, especially now in in this this COVID sphere where I wonder if we're ever going to get back to what the movies used to be (laughs) because to this day, I can recall the noise that the audience made when the Millennium Falcon dove out of the sun for the first time, yeah. you know, just sit sort there, of, because again, nobody knew we were all going you know, to, we do again, I'm in there the Monday after this thing opens on a Friday. And so we're all sitting there. No, nothing had been spoiled. Yeah. Everything was new. And to, that noise, you know, that lives with me today. And, and, and again, you know, that also the way when the credits rolled, the way the audience turned and talked to each other, like, yeah. oh. <laughs> just sort of, you know, just like, Oh my God, this was great. And when do we get another one?
1: What, what would you say during that time was your, uh, your, your first big story? Like what was the first thing that you remember just loving digging into?
2: Well, I, I had finished up, finished working for the, uh, the movie theater and had decided that I really wanted to see the world. And so the army offered me an opportunity to be a military journalist. So in 1983, uh, I, I joined the U S army and, but in kind of a cruel fate, I, I had asked to either be sent to the UK, uh, or to Japan. Uh, cause again, Tokyo, Disneyland. Yeah. And it turns out I was selected for a pilot program that made the mistake of doing well, at the defense information, uh, school at Fort Benjamin Harrison in Indiana, and they're like, we're gonna we're gonna do something special with you. And so, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? And it's like we're gonna send you back to where you came from. <laughs> like, I, I literally ended up stationed at Fort Devens, Massachusetts, which was 15 minutes from my parents' house. <laughs> you really saw the world there. Well, then, you know, join the army, see your neighborhood. So when I'm at the Defense Information School, conversations would twist to pointless Disney stories.
0: Oh, yeah, we know what that's like. <laughs> but, yeah, we just don't right, do it for so, the military. That's that's the only difference between us and you. <laughs> Let me ask you this real quick, Jim. Let me ask you this: I understand why you joined the, the military to see the world. That makes sense. Hmm. H- how do you get in as a journalist? I yeah. think most people think of uh, you know defense stuff, and you think I want to go write. I, do you have skill writing at this point in time? Have you developed that as a, a passion or some a skill set?
2: Yeah, I I had been writing at that point. I mean, I, I was doing some. Uh, magazine work some newspaper stuff you know i mean I, I, but again it's just local and again back when they did these things on uh, this miraculous stuff called paper huh okay <laughs> hmm. you know um it seems it seems uh, very uh, inefficient doesn't <laughs> it, it seems foldy yeah <laughs> so, but anyway i end up at fort Devens and one day i get a call from uh, a woman i went to the defense information school with marjorie ebert lovely woman hi marjorie uh and she's like I have this this crazy base commander who desperately wants um, publicity, you know, and he's just noticed that the Walt Disney Company
0: crazy base commander that sounds like a Disney movie plot itself. The crazy it, it, it crazy actually, base commander
2: that wants to have a you are not wrong, um, <laughs> really seriously. This guy learns that Donald Duck, you know, when Disney's going to do its year long celebration of Donald Duck's 50th anniversary. The base commander who comes into, Marjorie also works in her, you know, her base's PR office. He's like, Donald Duck is retiring, you know, Donald Duck's celebrating his 50th birthday. He's like, okay. He made military movies during World War II, didn't he? And Marjorie's like, well, I, I don't know, sir, but I know this idiot who's in Massachusetts at <laughs> Fort Devens who might know, hang on, let me get on the phone. <laughs> Uh, and she calls me, and I go, well, yeah, yeah, that's Sergeant Duck, and you know, a couple of shorts from the forties are thereabouts, and I give her the info. She reports back to her commander, and the commander then asks the, the million-dollar question: Did he ever retire from the military? You know,
1: Donald, the Donald Duck, Donald Fauntleroy Duck, yeah, Donald ever. Duck, the
2: <laughs> cartoon character. Did he ever retire from the military? This is the hard
1: hitting journalism you were hoping to do there, <laughs> yeah. Jim.
2: Oh, yeah. No, this is it. Exactly. This is this is a good joy. You know, that, that this is I'm doing my service for the country. Um, <laughs> but I don't You know. And she calls me. To, I don't know. But I know who to call as I get on the phone and I, I call Dave Smith at the archive. I apologize. This is an incredibly stupid question. <laughs> You know, but did Donald Duck ever retire from the military? And Dave actually goes through the files. <laughs>
1: <"You> wait, <know, laughs> wait, 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 wait. So, so Dave Smith, Walt Disney archivist and historian. Yep. You call, do you cold call him? Did you have a
2: relationship with I, before? You no know, like I I call I you know called the main switchboard at the 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 lot. They put you through the archive. Say, I on this the is uh, this is
1: Corporal Jim Hill of the yeah. U.S. Uh, U.S. Army yeah. calling for Dave Smith. We have some questions about
0: Donald Duck. <laughs> to get to this is get how we make all of our uh, defense quest, uh, defense decisions now as a nation. Is we watch Donald Duck.
2: <laughs> I I you, know, you again you know just uh, this is your tax dollar at work <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not offended by it. I want to know the answer to this question. I can't wait. Well,
2: the, the the thing is, and Dave, to his credit, goes to the files as a like, you know, and he he you know calls me back said you know I there's nothing here that says that Donald ever left the military, and you know so again it's telephone tag, aspect of the Marjorie, and now the the magic, the you know so he you know the base commander is like he never retired? Would the Disney Company like to have a retirement ceremony for him? And seriously, you can go now. You can go to uh, go to YouTube. You're looking for the Donald Duck 50th anniversary um, special that ran on CBS. It's hosted by Dick Van Dyke. In there's about a two minute long segment where you can see this guy did a full military retirement ceremony. So you're talking about 1,500 soldiers passing a review, oh, a yeah, military wow. band. Disney thought this was the greatest thing they'd ever heard I'm of. Sure. So they take every duck costume they can find out of the Disneyland, uh, you know, costume files and just send cast members down who appear in this parade. So it's Daisy, Donald, the nephews, Scrooge McDuck. Well, anyway, a uh, long story short, this guy gets everything he wants. Uh, you know, he gets his, It's <laughs> and- the craziest story. Ever. <laughs> and Jim gets promoted to general. It gets printed by her, her base newspaper and picked up me a copy of it along with a, 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 you know, a copy of the black and white photo of her idiot general taking Donald's hand. And I'm like, I read it and it's good, but I, I call Marjorie and say, Hey, you know, I'd love to put this in my base, in my own base newspaper, you know, cause it's, a, it's an amazing photograph. I just, I love this ridiculous photograph, but it would be okay if, with you. If I rewrote the story and Marjorie was like, Oh geez, absolutely. I, you know, thanks for all your help. My version with her photograph, gets picked up by the AP wire service and goes worldwide. Yeah. So it's in, you know, and so now for her base commander, this is double prizes. because yeah. Yeah. It's like, Oh my God, now I'm in the Los Angeles times. Now I'm in the London times. It's like, ah, you know, he, he loves this. But then Disney reaches out to me and it's like, Hey, we really liked the story. You did a nice job. And by the way, are you going to be out here next year? Cause we're doing the 30th anniversary of Disneyland. Mm. And you know we'd love to work with you on some stories, and that's really what got it started. That so again, I, I I owe a lot of what's happened to Donald Duck. So, that is uh, an awesome story. Such a good story.
0: <laughs> You're talking to Disney archivists. Disney calls you and says, "Are you coming out?" I mean, for me, I'm. I, I guess they call that going a wall. What do they call that when you just leave?
2: <laughs> yeah, what point? I used my. Well, again, what was the point of me using my leave? Uh, to go visit my family when they were fifteen minutes away. Hell, I drive home on weekends to do laundry. It's like, hi, hello. I'm your son, the soldier, and you know, where's the, the bleach? Um so I used my two weeks of leave to hop on Amtrak, take the train all the way across the country because I figured it's my last opportunity to see, you know, see what Walt was so obsessed about with trains. Uh, and then made it down to Disneyland in time for the the 85th celebration. They set up the press tent backstage between Main Street and um, uh, Tomorrowland. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that they, they as part of the press itinerary, they're like, hey, by the way, once in a lifetime opportunity, we're going to let you guys stand backstage and watch as we launch the Main Street electrical Parade Floats are literally parked. Right next to the press tent, they move the floats right up to the tent, and the clo- floats that's closest to the tent is the float for Return to Oz, okay, which <laughs> you know again had already come out in theaters and disappeared at this point. Yeah, yeah. But I, I personally enjoyed the film. In my sight line is TikTok, the, the the Royal Army of Oz, yeah, and it's like, and I'm standing there, you know, at the on the pavement looking up at the float, and it's like that looks like the prop from the film. I, you know, That actually looks like the outfit. And I look around, and there's there's nobody here. And so I get up on the float, because I figure, I, you know, <laughs> what am I going to get this opportunity? Again, it's like, just walk around the TikTok, and it's like, yeah. I mean, it's, in fact, it's even got the plate. It, and it says literally wind up to do the thing. And so it's like, oh, I got it. And so I got <laughs> to turn it. And the ring comes off of my hand. You know, it just the key is like, oh, mm.
1: um, <laughs> and, and, and the thirty and, seconds and this, from step off.
2: And, and well, this is the thing that the you know I, I see you know about a hundred feet away a Disney security guy is just come around a corner, so I jump off the float, jam the key in the pocket, like, oh my god, what did I just do? <laughs> you, know, you idiot! You know. Okay, so now it's time to launch the Return to Oz float. And so, same thing. All right. So, you know, they're loading. They, the person dresses as the a scarecrow and they're loading Dorothy on. They put their little safety ropes on and they proceed to power up the float. And what happens is, his first TikTok eyes glow green. And then his head pivots and looks directly at me. All right. <laughs> and then this one arm comes up and points at me like, You bastard. You <laughs> took my key. I am going to find you. And then. They, then they get a movement, start. You know, these head spins and his arms goes up and down. And
0: what if your career had what? been ended by return to Oz?
2: What if that had been huh. it? Uh, many, many careers have been ended by return to Oz. <laughs> there they there. I think the one thing that saved me, though, is in fact it was the key to wind up his think work. So I don't think he remembers who I was. <laughs> there you go. So, um, so but yeah, you know, I mean, it was an amazing trip. The real highlight was they did the ceremony in the plaza. So I'm sitting in the, the, the press area and there's, Dinkateri is just one row over. And these two guys, uh, two older men sit down and they start to talk and it's like, well, Herbie, what do you think? It's like, well, John. And it's like, <laughs> that's John Hench and that's Herbie. Rund. Yeah. And you know, and I, I can't help myself. I sort of lean over and look, gentlemen, I, I don't mean to interrupt your, your conversation. I just want to thank you for all of your work. And it's so nice to be here on this day for this. And they're like, Oh, and it just, it was, I, I don't know, I, I i don't know how I did it. I must have phrased it right, but we spent the next half hour talking. Uh, and those were my first Imagineers that I, you know, or first of Walt's Imagineers yeah. that I got. And, you know, they, they shared some amazing stories about uh, the opening day. In fact, they were talking about, um, <laughs> you know, remember when we were looking for the knife, we, you know, it was sort of the hatchet wielding Teamster and it was like, what? you know and, Well they, they, it's John explained that's why when you watch the uh Dateland uh Dateline Disneyland, the 90 minute long live special, yeah, why yeah. there's this these weird camera moments. I mean they spent three days rehearsing. It was, you know, amazingly smooth. They had this amazingly professional show set up, but they had ticked off the Teamsters because they brought asphalt up from San Diego to pave Disneyland streets. There's one teamster walking around backstage with a hatchet, but he was dressed as a Disneyland-like janitor. and <laughs> He would just wait until nobody was looking and that he'd slice the camera cables with the hatchet. And so, you know, that's why when you watch it, it's like, we now cut the camera too, which is, you know, Danny Thomas scratching his nose. Um, because, you know, we now have a dead camera yeah. because this, they finally found him in the middle of the show. But, uh, But again, again, that's the type of stories they were sharing.
1: And, and how does that um, like what is that like for you? because you're you're still you're still serving in the Army mm-hmm. at this point, yep. and you're having these connections with uh, you know, the, the creators of childhood memories, childhood hopes, and and the the uh, memories and nostalgia that you're experiencing even in that moment, you know, you're you're experiencing something you know will be a memory for you coming come in the future. When you get discharged uh, from the army, Do you just go into entertainment journalism with this bent toward uh, theme parks because of the relationships that you have established while you were serving in the Army?
2: Pretty much. I mean, again, um, Disney enjoyed the stuff I did for um, Disneyland's 30th in uh, 85. I don't leave the service till 87. I, I love Hollywood history coupled with the fact that I try to stay current know on you know who the new filmmakers are that sort of thing i can stand with a foot in both worlds and yeah. it was a great time to be writing about the yeah. disney company
0: yeah. let me ask you this real quick jim I, i'm a huge fan of uh not a huge fan i don't know why i'm so obsessed with the book uh the disney war uh about about eisner and katzenberger you're you're reporting on that this time what was that i mean you say it's a great time to be writing about the disney company because of all the new stuff that's happening but there's also just eisner's just a magnet for big story about himself, about the people he's hiring, about how long they're there, about the stuff. What's that like as a lover of Disney and a reporter of Disney to find the truth when the truth sometimes is co- is complicated and not always flattering, regardless of what you think about Eisner? I'm a fan. i just be on the record of that.
2: Okay. Well, no. I mean, uh, look, Michael's a complicated guy. <laughs> um, you know, and in fact, you know, the, the, the tough part of the Michael Eisner story is if, you go just on the back of, you know, the first 10 years. He was the right guy in the right place. Uh, he had, you know, great love for, and in fact, he used to tell the story. It's like, you know, like, look, Eisner, you know, E-I-S-N-E-R, yeah, Disney, cool. D-I-S-N-E-R. Yeah, uh, <S-2> yeah, uh, you know why? It's like, well, I'm two letters off. It's the same household. thing. You know, um, Now, Michael, I mean the the interesting thing is that Michael was this incredible centrifuge of ideas. You know, he'd come in on a Monday morning and you know, and piss them in all sorts of different directions and the uh you know the the feasibility folks would go out and do studies and do you think there's
0: something about that, that Eisner period to me, there's just, there's something just so different about it that I'm a, that I'm very just fascinated with, uh, everything that's happening. The right when Eisner returns to TV, sort of, I don't want to say is the embodiment of Walt, when he starts showing up in the park yeah. again, there's just something very different for me about that time of my life of feeling like Disney was alive in a way that was, that I've not really felt since. And it's probably why I'm so nostalgic about that area. But do you feel like that's a real thing? Am I feeling that right with, with the stuff that was happening on TV and the expansion of the movies? And it just, it felt exciting. I don't know.
2: No, no, it's, it's a great period. It's a great, I mean, again, that's, that's when I was doing so much of the writing about, you know, the company and, and, you know, you had Disney doing, you know, at least interesting films. I mean, things like the Rocketeer, that amazing run of animated features from mermaid beast to Aladdin to lion King. Yeah. Uh, and, and then from, you know, it's that next 10 years where, where Michael second guesses himself and Mm. makes cautious choices and he gets in his own way. And then he pisses off Roy and we get the whole save Disney movement. And that got really weird because, um, I, you know, I, 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 I'm sitting here literally in the house. Well, now I'm not sitting, I'm asleep in a chair and the phone rings and it's like, okay, hello. And it's like, please hold for Roy Disney. And it's no like,
0: <laughs> like,
2: what, you know? And it's just sort of like, it was Roy. They had started the save Disney movement and it was like, you know, we'd like your help. And it's like, I'm kind of a reporter. I'm not supposed to pick sides. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, that, but he's like, we're looking for ideas and, you know, about what we should do. And I said, you know, to be honest, you know, if you really wanted to get people's attention, they just laid off. Uh, you know the entire, entire animation Florida, staff yeah. in Florida, yeah. and you know, you know, you might remember from your childhood the the images of the people uh, picketing outside of Walt Disney Studios in 41. And yeah. wouldn't it be interesting? Disney's about to hold a, uh, you know, their their <laughs> annual shareholders meeting in Philadelphia. Wouldn't it be interesting if you flew a bunch of animators up and gave them signs and <laughs> let them walk? Emails the planting ideas, you know. <laughs> And you know, and then, but the weird part of it is, he's like, Oh, that's good." Look, <laughs> I, I don't think they actually went ahead with it. But the, where it got strange is that the morning of the annual meeting, um, I had I'd done this kind of nothing interview, um, been forgotten about it. But you know, so we're down in Philadelphia. I've got my press credentials. We're going to go in and. You know, this is when Michael had the the infamous no confidence vote and they took away his chairmanship. Yep, yep, yep. All right, so, you know, open the hotel room door and there's the Wall Street Journal, but there above the fold in their classic woodblock is my face. You know, and it's like I had told the reporter the story about, you know, Roy calling me. And so it's, and that's the lead. You know, and it's just one of these things where it's like, you know, I'm I'm now part of the event, and it's like, oh, this is not good. And it wasn't because I showed up to get my press credential. Zena Muka, the new head of PR for Disney, it's like we have pulled your credentials. You know, and <laughs> wow. And but but the thing is, then that became a story. And that night, I'm on CNN Money. You know, you know, talking about the meeting, and hey, and you weren't allowed to go into it. And it's like, yeah, I, I wasn't. And I, I'm not supposed to be part of this story. Yeah. I'm supposed to be over
0: here. But I want to take you back. I want to hold you to, I want to, hold you to the question. You're, you're so close to all this stuff. You become closer and closer to all this stuff. It seems that you have such an appreciation for the story behind the story, the people behind the story, not necessarily needing to make the story yourself to make movies, to be in movies and stuff like that. Does that remain true? And what is that like to be so close to it but never go all the way in, inside?
2: One of the things that makes my my job easy is the fact that when you sit down with somebody, you know, a, a Brad Bird or, a, you know, a, a Rich Moore who I really wish was still at Disney, and you talk with them about their job like it's a job, that yeah. you don't sit there and, you know, fanboy on them. You know, it's like um, I remember talking with uh, Oznet, um, the, the producer of Moana, and, you know, we're sitting in her office and, you know, just sort of like, okay, I have to ask, because let's be honest, three-quarter of this movie are two people standing on a raft. And how do you make that interesting yeah. for three-quarter of the movie? And she's like, oh, my God, you know, that, that's, that's been my nightmare for the last year and a half. You know, the effect of, I just have Moana and I have Maui. And, they, you know, thank God for that rooster. You know, just sort of like... <laughs> I going to make this interesting. Hey, he's doing a lot of heavy lifting (laughs) for me. It's as long as I work my side of the street, but I I come into a room and I'm semi knowledgeable about, you know, what a person has done over the course of their career. And, you know, the, the timeline they've been working on this film and the challenges they face, they look like flowers. They, they, they just, it's like, Oh, you know, finally somebody who gets it. Uh, and that's when you get the great stories and, and more to the point, when you go to the next uh, press event, it's like, oh, it's you. Yeah. Okay, cool. You know, I don't have to tell the five stories I've told to every other journalist in the room.
1: But, but, Jim, you—I mean, uh, you know—you you say that one of the qualities is not fanboying out for these people, but there's got to be a part of you that's also just uh, uh, amazed at the conversations that you get to have about these pieces of history that you that you do cherish. So, I, I'm I'm wondering. You know, what is uh, what is someone that you've met, maybe Mark Davis is, is it, what is someone that you've met during your career that while you're talking to them, you're thinking, I can't believe I'm talking with this person right now. Or or after you get done having that conversation, you just think, wow, I, I can't believe I had that
2: opportunity. The genuinely weird part, again, I've been doing this for 35 yeah. years. And yes, I mean, it, it's wonderful to, to be able to talk to a John Hench or a Herbie Ryman or a Mark Davis or that sort of thing. But it's also important to remember um, that anybody who's working on one of these films is potentially the next John Lasseter. So you get it, so it's one of these things where it's like, you know, if you're lucky enough to get this gig, you know, rule number one, be nice and personable and professional to everybody. Because yeah. you never know, you know, for example, Jennifer Lee, you know, uh, you know, was one of these people who came through the door uh, as a writer, you know, she was she brought in to help with Vanellope von Schweetz on Wreck-It Ralph. Yep. And mm-hmm. then, you know, it turned out to, you know, that worked out well. And then, you know, then the working on frozen and you know, Jennifer actually went to school here in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. So that was a thing one. When, when I would, you know, and here's Jim Hill from New Hampshire, but New Hampshire, it's a secret. Hampshire. And so, <laughs> you know, so, you, you are nice and professional for everybody because you never know who you're going to turn on, you know, who becomes the next, you know, master filmmaker.
0: If you would tell your listeners what a, I would like to hear how, how the first five, six years is different from now that you're established, but take us through like what, it, how does it work? How do you, how do you get information? Is it hard? Is it easy? Are people coming to you now? What is the, what does a Jim Hill day look like? Yeah. Like what the question that
1: I had was, the question that I had was, uh, mm-hmm. Do you know everybody or does just everybody know you at this point?
2: I, I got dumb lucky. I really did. I, in, in 97, my ex-wife, uh, now Michelle Valladolid, uh, she meets up with Al Lutz, who is the gentleman. At that time, he's running the Disneyland Information guy, But this eventually becomes the website that centers Mouse Planet. Uh, which, along with Laughing Place, is one of the very first blogs that covers Disney. And so they're looking to change the Disneyland Disneyland Information Guide to, you know, something that goes from being published once a week, once a month, to, you know, a couple times a week. We need writers. My ex and I are friendly. You know, we, we have a lovely daughter, Alice. And so one day, Michelle calls and goes, hey, can you do me a favor? I'm part of this web thing. We need content and would you be willing to write us a story that was the week that michael eisner's by you know the 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 memoir work in progress came out yeah and it's like i can knock out 500 words of michael eisner's you know uh, bio and but again i'm an old newspaper magazine guy i'm used to you write the story you hand it to the editor he cuts stuff out and a month later it shows up or if you're lucky and it's a newspaper maybe it shows up the next day and the next week and that sort of thing. And so I, I emailed it to Michelle. And she's like, good, great. And, you know, and I'm um, doing chores around the house. then like 15 minutes later, it's up. And it's like, what? It's up. <laughs> People are already commenting on it and really enjoying it. And it was like, it was that first little taste of heroin. You know, just sort of like, <laughs> like oh, what is what is this thing? <laughs> well,
1: uh, and speaking of which, I mean, you, you are... A prolific podcaster at this point. I mean, you've got what five shows? Five shows that you're doing. I mean, you've got a you've got a pretty serious release. I schedule. gotta say this
0: too, Jim. You got a great voice. Do you ever do voiceover work? You have such a there's a unique twang to your voice that it's it's really cool.
2: Well, you know, again, that 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 was the weird part of being at the uh, Defense Information School. I missed the the class cycle. Uh, so for three weeks, four weeks, every day, you know, I put on my dress screens and I would go down and I would uh, MC retirement ceremonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was only after those, those weeks were up where it was like, um, oh, I get to go to school. Great. And it's like, when she's like, well, have fun at broadcast school, I said, no, I'm 71 Q. I'm a journalist. And she's like, what? <laughs> that voice you're going to sit behind a typewriter. Yeah, and I'm I'm serious. Just sort of, I think she had it right. I mean, face it, you, you, when you guys are doing Bob Suds and Banthas, face it, there, there's this wonderful confluence right now between what Disney is doing and what Lucasfilm is doing yeah. and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Star Wars. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating time. For me, though, I mean, yeah, the thing of doing all the different podcasts is, like, all of these need a moment in the spotlight. And, sure. and in fact, mm-hmm. you know, that was one of the reasons why I started the Universal Joint podcast, because I honestly think you can't talk about Disney especially Disney theme parks today, uh, without talking about Universal. I mean, face it, Disney would have never made, you know, oh. Galaxy's oh. Edge.
1: It's the themed
2: entertainment arms race. Oh, no, absolutely. And we're the ones who are are, are benefiting. Totally. <laughs> yeah. The thing about Galaxy's Edge, you know, I mean, you guys know the story. You know that, you know, the first year and a half, two years, it was Tatooine. It, yeah, Tatooine right. all the way. Right. And it was Kathleen Kennedy uh, who eventually, it's like, look, guys, you know the, you know when it comes to the theme parks, the future of Star Wars isn't behind us; yep. it's in front of us, yep. and we need a loose construct, we need a space that we can bring characters into. And I'm not going to lie, you know, think about it. in In the coming months, when you know when Mando in the Child turns up in Galaxy's Edge. People are going to lose their minds, you know. uh, You know, I'm going to stand. Never mind standing in a three-hour line to get on Rise of the Resistance. I want my picture taken with Mando and the child. Right. Um, So, you know, in the end, it turned out to be the right call. But, I mean, what do you guys make of of Galaxy Z?
1: Well, I, I mean, I haven't had the opportunity to experience it yet. Aaron has. From a storytelling standpoint, I would say that I, I think that's the right call. I think uh, having a place like Batu where you can create your own stories, uh, you can create your own Star Wars and put it into uh, uh, a unspecified planet, I, mm. I like that idea. I think uh, pinning it to a specific timeline in Star Wars uh, history, I think that's the more problematic thing than having a space that people are relatively unfamiliar with because, you know, from everything I've read about and seen, it is authentically Star Wars. It just may be, the again, the time period that it's set in to, to say we're here in a post-imperial, uh, you, you know, um, First Order uh, timeline that could be the biggest challenge I think to Galaxy's Edge, but I'll, I'll let Aaron uh, weigh in on this. I'll as just well. take
0: the opposite approach, just for funsies. I yep. just, I, I, you know, I'm in, the first time I stepped in Galaxy's Edge, the, the anticipation, you know, it's just it, you've you've waited your entire life to live in a in, in a world that you've always wanted to live in, uh, and I think. I think for non nerds, it's a little bit difficult to to figure it all out. I don't know that they care as much as I care. I don't know if they care as much as Scott cares, uh, you know. And and so to have it be on Tatooine, um, I don't know. I would forgive a lot to get mm-hmm. that experience to be on Tatooine. I think a lot of people don't know the difference between the timelines. They don't know the difference between the planets. It looks Star Wars. It feels Star Wars. For me, I know the difference to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, there was a part of me that that the, uh, the Olga's Cantina. Uh, for me is, is the best experience in that line by far because it's the thing that feels most like a cantina I grew up with. And so there, there's just a large nostalgia hit that it took for me. Was, I was trying to figure out the marketplace and I was like confused as to what was going on. It was beautiful and it was fun, but I was a little confused. So I don't know. There were just some there's some parts of it that were huge hits for me. The cantina was just a huge hit. Uh, and then it just seemed way sparser than I thought. It just I just thought there would be people walking around talking different dialects. I just, I just thought it would be so alive. Uh, and, and it was Hmm. not for me as much as I, as I wanted. So I don't know. That's my two minute take.
2: No, 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 you're not wrong. You know, I mean, it just, the, you know, the problem is that, you know, there were certain things that were promised, whether it was, you know, the 20 or 30 droids that were supposed to be rolling through the streets, the, you know, the stunt show across the rooftops that was going to happen. Uh, and again, honestly, honestly, um, the Bantha ride, I think, would have been—you know—it was supposed to be that park's equivalent of the Mine Train through Nature's Wonderland, yeah, or the, uh, or sorry, the People yeah, Mover, right? right? Yeah. Oh. You know, I, you know, you start in the downtown area and then go up into the mountains, and you were actually going to be able to. You know, the, the idea was that you were gonna be the first to observe that the uh you know the rebels were here, that they were hiding in the forest. And it's like I don't tell on. anybody.
0: Yeah. What do you make of the chicken? What do you make about this whole the, 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 the idea of what we're gonna call it chicken or we're gonna call it tip yip? Like or, or whatever it's called, like is that important to people? Is it important to you? Do you think as a theme park, it's like no, you got to be a hardland. We don't call them restrooms, and we don't call it chicken because they don't have those things. Or do you like understand that there's a lot of families? I mean, they don't give a darn. They, they just they just want to go to the bathroom and eat chicken, which is the right move. <laughs> which is and the right in move that in, order too. In,
2: in that order, what's the right move in Jim Hilland? There's this wonderful analogy that that people in the um, the theme park world when they're building a new land they use the analogy of people going to the beach all right you know there are you know you always have to understand that you know there are people who go to the beach and you know they lay in their chair you know they take they're happy to lay in the sun and look out at the water uh you know then there are people who want to go down and you know wade you know just you know get get their feet wet and splash around but they're not they're not you know they're not there you know to to be any more active than that Then you have the swimmers, you know, the actual people who dive in and are swimming around, splash about. And then, you know, and 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 then there are the mer people, (laughs) all right. (laughs) You know, I mean, the ones who just, you know, they 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 are so into the experience. They are so, you know, they they are the ones who, you know, two hundred dollars to buy a thing. at saves absolutely. I get to build my own you know a lightsaber or I get to go to the droid depot and build my own droid absolutely and that's the thing I think in a weird sort of way Batu really leaned in too heavily initially to the Mur people yeah and understanding that you know the the very guests you were talking about you know that, that I'm standing there in front of the menu and well is the kid gonna eat tip you know tip, tip you know uh you know because you know I, I, I can barely get him to eat rice krispies you know it's what is yeah it's chicken all right you know so, yeah, I mean, it just, that's the thing. You you have to balance it. Yeah. How, how much do you think, how
1: many do you think those, maybe you can qualify them as misses? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, again, I haven't experienced it personally, so I'm not really sure how I'd feel about it yet. But mm-hmm. how much do you think the company will course correct in the next, let's say, five to 10 years. Cause in some ways they're doubling down in Florida. When you see, uh, you know, you see them building the, the star Wars resort, um, yep. and sort of yep. going for this, uh, uh, you know, this, this marooned cruise ship type of business model, uh, crossed with Westworld. Uh, and then, and then there's just the little things like, well, blue milk doesn't taste the way I think blue milk should taste and green milk doesn't taste the way green milk should taste. And, I, and and again the, the the time periods like I don't really have a I don't have an affinity for these characters the Rays and the Kylo Rens but I do care about Luke and Han and Leia how much do you think the the company may course correct over again in the let's say let's call it midterm uh, it, to make Galaxy's Edge more palatable to the non Mer people.
2: You know, I, I think a lot of this depends on the future efforts of John Favreau and Dave Filoni. Sure. You know, I, I think you know, for example, uh, and let's be honest here. You know, the Mandalorian, uh, you know, the the first television project of size, but you know, enthusiastically embraced, you know, across the board. Except by Aaron. Uh,
1: except by Aaron Robbins. Just to be clear, I'm the only one that doesn't like that show. Yeah.
2: <laughs> really? I know.
0: I'll, I'll Why in. is that? Oh boy! Oh boy! <sighs> to, I mean, I don't want to get all attacked, but uh, the 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 way they shoot it, the the, the virtual, the, the you know the, the the using game engine stuff and all that. Stuff, wonderful! I'm so into the technology like that. The mm-hmm. writing at times uh, seems to be both unaware of itself and aware of itself in a way that 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 the the dialogue, the plotiness of it. Uh, I get that that's a TV way to write plots. It feels outside of the Star Wars universe, where Star Wars the dialogue feels cheesy, but in a very Star Wars way, and it never it it never breaks its cheesiness. Mandalorian seems to exist in this weird thing where it's both being cheesy and not cheesy at the same time, unintentionally. And so for me, it was really just the stories. Like I couldn't understand the pace at which people were falling in love, and 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 the, the attacks, everything. Just Lil' Aaron Lil' Aaron Rob- Robbins just wanted a little more out of the writing. I, I
2: categorically okay, okay. disagree. No, no, you. But you know, I I don't know if you you saw the Disney Gallery Mandalorian show at all. That that they they actually talked about how you know in a weird sort of way when you think about you know the Ugnot and the uh you know the 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 uh, what was it uh the, the droid that was uh the bounty hunter IG eleven yep. Yeah, well, he talked about how, you know, it really, when you look at the show, it's kind of like your brother took all of the good Star Wars figures, <laughs> and you were left to, to make your show out of the bad <laughs> Star Wars figures. And in yeah. a and, and way, I, I, I got that. I, in, I enjoyed that. In fact, just today, they were. Entertainment Weekly cover story coming yeah, out about the right. season two, uh, and they were just talking about how they're they're expanding, they're upping the stakes, they're expanding the universe. Come season two, some of the stuff that you were saying, Aaron, you know, uh, I think some of that's being addressed. I think that's also largely on the back of. Let's face it, this was a huge success, especially when you compare it to what just happened with the rise of Skywalker, yeah. Yeah. where. And in fact, I don't know if you, you saw the the story with Daisy Ridley that just came out yesterday about, or she's talking, it's like Josh Gad is sitting. The, oh in the yeah, the, Eleanor, with Josh Gad. And, and talking about the fact that who Ray was supposed to be in the first film changed in the second film. That's right. And then, you know, that, that he she was supposed to be, uh, what is it, the granddaughter of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Right,
1: That that, that and, had been thrown out at one point.
2: Yeah, and then they, you know, you know, last Jedi, you know that that got tossed for uh, you know Ryan Johnson's take on it, and then JJ came back and tried to course correct, yeah. and then it's like, well, wait a minute, what if she's the daughter of the Emperor? And it's just sort of the whole notion of think about it. George wrote the Journal of the Wills twelve different instalments. Right. He knew right. exactly where the story was going to go, right. and and now we go to the new trilogy, and it's just sort of like. Uh, she's obi-wan's daughter no wait a minute she's that guy's daughter she's chewbacca's daughter (laughs) are you just sort of like you know it's like come on this this is not the kind of storytelling that you know we saw out of of the lucas's in the Spielberg. sure well jim
0: hill made me excited for mandalorian episode two and that's saying that's saying a lot i got one more question for you before we before we go i want to know what what 10-year-old Jim Hill thinks of what Jim Hill got to do, gets to do for a living? What does Jim Hill's dad think about what Jim Hill got to do for a living?
1: Did you say um, got to do? Yeah. Okay, just making sure.
2: Uh, I, get, I have to understand that that I come from a family of educators. You know, that mm-hmm. that's, in fact, you know, my parents were teachers. Uh, my brother, Dan, is a teacher. My sisters, Andrea, is a teacher. Um, and so... You know, it, it, the, the fact that, you know, I was the flaky one who didn't finish college and went off and went did entertainment writing. And, um, you know, I, it, it, for a lot of years, it was tough for them to take. Mm. Um, on the other hand, just this past week, I was a guest speaker at Texas Christian University. I did oh, yeah. a, a, a Zoom presentation there, and it was very strange to to you know, talk with my parents about, oh yeah, I did a, a, a college thing this, this week. And it was like, you know, so you're educating. And it's like, well, yeah, telling my little <laughs> pointless stories. I think 10 year old Jim Hill would, would love the fact that, you know, when he had his three Disney books, uh, I bought the very, the first edition of the Disney films, uh, Leonard Malton's history book. And I was able some 25 years later to take it to an event where uh, Leonard was there interviewing Roy, uh, mm. Roy E. Disney. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, again, around that Save Disney time. And what was great was that there was this huge line, obviously to get picture taken with Roy and, you know, get his autograph and that sort of thing. And there were just a handful of us, Uh, Over by Leonard and I walked up and I handed him his book and he, you know, he kind of teared up. It's like, oh my God, it's a first edition, you know, Mm, because he updated it three and four times, but it's just, there were only three Disney books now. Now I got so many goddamn books. I got to (laughs) figure out, you know, know, it's, it's one of these things where it's like, it's hard to stay ahead of the tsunami.
1: Jim, I, uh, oh boy, I want to ask another question, but I feel like that's just such a great place to end on the book ending of, of 10 year old Jim Hill. And then what 10 year old Jim Hill thinks of modern day Jim Hill. So I think I'm going to save my, my question for, for next time. Next time. Um, yeah. but I'll, 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 I'll give you a preview of what it is. My question is, will Disney ever get Tron right? I can't wait to hear what your thoughts are on that. We'll ask that. I'll, I'll let you answer that another time. Uh, I've,
2: I've I've heard very good things about oh, this this, making this little new Scott one. Storm excited little
1: Scott Storm is very excited about this. Okay. Um, uh, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up. Thank you for taking so much
0: time with us. We went way over. We could have gone for another four or five hours on our end. And, oh, so and much so. There's
1: so many and stuff and, I'm I, again, holding I, back I, and asking I, you.
2: I appreciate the info and and I appreciate the the. the the indulgence of me yapping.
1: Oh, no. We, you know? we, we're so, thankful to ha- have you so much, with man. us. Thanks for taking the time. I have one. Uh, we, we said we were going to play a game, and I'm going to mm-hmm. truncate it. Just uh, Just one question. So we're going to play a game called Freeze It, Trash It, Plus It. And again, mm-hmm. the idea of this game is we give you three things. You have to keep one exactly as it is. You have to get rid of it. Uh, get rid of another one, and you have to figure out how to plus the third. Yep. Okay, and it's Jim Hill, right. and and, uh, <laughs> Paul Pressler, and Michael Eisner. No, 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 you no trash it's one, no, you it's keep
0: one. <laughs> I'm but, joking. I'm joking.
1: But I feel like this will be a good one for Jim Hill. Okay, I've, I had a, a whole had a whole bunch for this game, but because we're short on time, I'm going to give you just one. Okay, so freeze it, okay. trash it, plus it. Jim third, Hill edition. Here are the th- Jim Hill edition. Here are the three things: the black hole, the black cauldron and Blackbeard's ghost.
2: Oh, that's a good one. All right. Um, let's freeze Blackbeard's ghost. Yeah. <laughs> because that is the, you know, the story about. The most Walt ridiculous ghost. story ever. Is that what you mean? <laughs> well, no, 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 no. I, I, Again, for me, it's, that was, after Walt had had his surgery, mm. and had had the lung removed, he returned to the lot for a day, and, that was one of the sets he showed up on. Oh. And I got to talk with Suzanne Pluchette once mm. about what that was like. And that, you know, he showed up in the set and he just looked god awful. Mm, yeah. You know, he was yellow and thin and his sweater was hanging off of him, but he's still, you know, he's still Walt. And he, you know, he's the one who gave her her career. Uh, and so she's on the set flirting with him and, you know, she's flirting right back. And, you know and then you know when he goes over to talk to Dean and Peter Ustinov, um, and she goes back to her, her dressing room and bursts into tears because it's mm-hmm. just sort of like, oh my god, he's dying. Mm-hmm. And 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 Dean, you know, in fact, Dean once told me this story about you know this very same thing. He continues the conversation, so Walt comes over and Walt is immediately talking with Peter because they've already lined up their next project that they're going to do at the studio. And that's Khrushchev at Disneyland. Yep. Yep. He, he's going to shave his head and he's going to play Nikita Khrushchev who sneaks away from his hotel in LA because he's going to get to Disneyland come hell or high water. And, you know, and Walt asks him, uh, you know, well, how are you going to play it? And it's like, well, I'm thinking of playing Nikita like my aunt. Out. You know, she was <laughs> a very little fuzzy lady. And it's just sort of like, you know, I have a way into the character and, like okay, guys. Well, I got to get going, and he turns and walks out of the stage and and Peter turns to Dean and says, "That's a dead man walking." Mm. You know, and it just sort of did. So again, for me, I, I wouldn't change a thing about that movie because of the stories sure. behind yeah. it. That yep. this is the very last thing the guy, kind of Walt touches before he leaves us.
1: Also, right, Dead so, Pirate helping a track coach. I mean, yeah, you know, you're, n- you're never going to make oh, another know, movie it's, like
2: it's that. It's, 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 it's a stupid movie. Let's yeah, be completely great honest. hotel, so,
1: though. But,
2: you know, <laughs> stories around the stupid movie. Um, okay, so freeze it
1: and fix it. Um, you got you got, to tr- you got to trash another one, and you got to plus another one. So
0: yeah, make one 20. better and get rid of one altogether. Wipe one off the face of the earth and make one better.
2: All right. Um Again, on the strength of those Kirby strips, I seriously think somebody could go back and do a good Black Hole. I completely
1: agree. It's probably not Disney, but I agree (laughs) that somebody could make a very good Black Hole movie.
2: In in fact, to to, to swing back to Tron, remember the follow-up project that Joseph Kaczynski was going to do after Tron Legacy. Was an updated, that's and right. Right. version of black hole, which oh, yeah. they
1: they have a black hole reference in Tron Legacy at the very yeah, beginning it was a poster.
2: The black hole, if you've ever seen the original um, trailer for the black hole, in fact, again, I'm totally dating myself here, but it was summer of '79 it debuts in theater. It's one of the very first times that CG is used right. in an ad for a movie, and it's an amazing grid pattern. That's where right. And suddenly, you know, you you're being pulled, and you know the. You know there's a force in the universe that's stronger than anything, stronger than light, you know. And and you know, and you get pulled down into the hole, and then the flying up out that's of right. it, and then and, and there's this voiceover "A journey that begins where everything ends. And such it's, like, it's, it's, it's such a
1: great tagline, it's such a great
2: tagline. That's exactly there's a great movie there. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. just sort of like, but Disney wasn't capable of making it, and speaking and of movies that Disney wasn't capable of moving, black cauldron burned yeah. <laughs> to, to the ground, all right, you know, just. You know, put that thing in The Witcher. And I say that with love because I know people who worked so hard on it. And it was the very – people like Andreas Deja. You know, that was one of his very first jobs at yeah. Disney was was working on this project. And they put their heart and soul into it. But, you know, I, who ever thought like, – if you read the press from that period, they talk about we're making our snow white. This is our generation <laughs> of animators, snow white. And You look at the material – Really, the mm. guy with the antlers who dissolves people. All right, absolutely.
1: Yeah, well, I'll take I'll take those answers in the bank. Great. What about you, Aaron?
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: okay. I mean, I would have swapped Black Cauldron and and, and Black Hole to be honest, but I'm not disagreeing with Jim Hill. The
1: Guys, a legend. What are That's you talking right.
2: about? <laughs> so. Well, Jim, well anyway, guys, Jim, pl- you so uh, plug, plug your invite. stuff.
1: Take 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 a mm. moment to plug your stuff and all the shows that you do, and uh, oh. so let our listeners know where they can hear more of you.
2: The show is already too long. Uh, uh, you know, we'll cut right. it down. Don't uh, worry. Okay. We got Disney-ish with Len Testa, the, the, the mothership. And again, uh, good, same thing. Like Len was like, let's do a couple of these. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, uh, we got fine tuning with Drew Taylor. Wonderful writer, by the way, really go check out his stuff on Collider. Uh, we have Dan Z, who I do looking with Lucasfilm with, but that's coffee with Kenobi. Uh, again, know, just, good stuff. Do we have Aaron Adams who I do the Marvelous Disney podcast with? And Aaron <laughs> the poor bastard. Like to go through all of the podcasts and cut out the billion times they say um. <laughs> <laughs> uh and then we have uh, I do Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse, great guy. Uh and and again, uh Sally lead, uh who I do the I want that podcast with. And I would not be doing this today. If Shelley hadn't reached out and said, "Hey, can you write one story?" That's great for uh, Al Lutz and me. Uh, you know the Disney, um, but the Disneyland information.
1: So, well, well, all of them are great shows. Uh, I'm I'm a personal fan of all of them, and uh, so I encourage our listeners to go out and listen to them if they aren't already. Jim, thanks right. for letting us keep Thank you along. We really appreciate it.
2: Not a problem. Thanks again, guys. Have a great night. We'll talk soon. Okay.
1: Well, uh,
0: man, that was Jim Hill. What a fantastically fun interview. I could have gone on talking with him for hours. I almost forgot that we were podcasting. I had,
1: I had so many questions I wanted to ask him. Uh, and a lot of them were just non-secretive questions like, hey, Jim Hill, what do you think about this? Yeah. Hey, Jim Hill, what do you think about this? Not in uh, a- in any type of fanboy way, but really just because I really am just interested to know his thoughts on these things that you and I love so much.
0: Yeah, here's the thing. I walk around Burbank and I look at the the hospital next to it, um, which is where I guess some secret meetings used to happen. I look at the the Walt Disney Studios. I just want somebody to walk with me so I can ask him questions, and yeah. Jim Hill has the answer to almost that? every
1: question I would ask. You just pointing to things. Tell me about that. What happened Jim. there? <laughs> Tell uh, me about looks, that
0: looks important. And so it is. There is a bit of just it's it, it is fanboyish, but it's it's informational fanboys, yeah. and, and that I'm totally comfortable with that level of fanboy. Where I'm so into this history, I'm so into this culture, I'm so into the 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 archival nature of it, and he's just uh, he's just made a life and a career of collecting. These stories that are really important, people. And what what? A, just a treat to get to spend uh, an evening listening. Absolutely. To
1: that. I, I I hope we get a chance to talk with him again soon. And uh, yeah, I'm serious about uh, about trying to pitch him on a show. You know, it's weird.
0: Like uh, here's quick, just quick weird thought on Jim Hill is that his uh, his uh, work as a journalist, his then skill set as a storyteller, and then his ability to pick a bad and good movie, to pick the right and wrong move for a theme park. It's just weird how those overlap. Right. How those are such complementary skill sets. Yeah, and I think that's neat. Where he would have a comment on what the right move is on this or whether or not that's a good movie or not, because he has these storytelling skills, uh, which are derived in uh, retelling factual events through journalism. I just think that's neat
1: that that all overlaps. Very neat. Very happy to have, have uh, very happy to have had him on the show and looking forward to the next time talking with him again. We hope uh we hope you've enjoyed listening. This has been Bob's Hudson and Banthas. We release every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if we're not there, we want to be. So get a hold of us and let us know where else we should be so we can be there. Please be sure to subscribe and we sure would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know what you think about it. And so you can pop right on over and uh did I say iTunes? I did say iTunes. <laughs> You're on a cookie high right now. You're sweating sugar. You don't even know what you're doing
0: right now. I you have need no- more
1: snickerdoodle. <laughs> you have no idea what's happening. Hey, please be sure to subscribe, and we would love it if you left us a review over on Apple Podcasts. You can actually do it right in the app, Aaron. You can? can I thought I had to get out of the app and then log in, and it
0: was just going to be a hassle. You
1: don't. While you're listening to this outro, you can just uh, go and review us right now. What kind of review do you think I should give like a. I think you should do five stars. Five stars? Okay. Yeah. You haven't left us a review yet. Yeah. You should. Yeah. Five-star review. Five star review, leave it for us. It It helps. It helps. It helps other people find the show. It lets us know what you like about the show. So please take a moment, pop over into the review section of Apple Podcasts, and leave us a review. You can get your review
0: read on this show if you if you leave it in iTunes. Oh, we can't wait to read your review if it's a five star. Yeah, four-star just gets, you get made fun of. Well, see, now I've just encouraged people to leave a four-star so that they can get made fun of. I will make fun of you if you leave a five-star as well.
1: Oh, we'll make fun of you all day for a five-star. <laughs> we won't mention you for a four-star.
0: <laughs> That's the way it goes.
1: Uh, you can visit us at bobsudsandbanthus.com or email us info at if you want to do some sort of collaboration with us. We would love that. Otherwise, you can follow us over on Instagram at Bob Suds and Banthas, where we do just lots of fun things all So much long. fun stuff so posted over there. Uh, again, Jim Hill Media Network. Uh, you just got to go go Google Jim Hill Media, and you will find links to all of the podcasts, all of the things he does and writes. And uh, we just encourage you to go find out more about this guy. We have just enjoyed having him has with so us. He so many
0: podcasts. I wonder if he's ever out and he forgets he's not podcasting. If he like orders in a podcast voice, he's like sitting at a restaurant.
1: (laughs) He may. Uh, He's a really good podcaster, man. I'm just really happy. I'm really happy to have seen him make that move into into this area of media because he's just gifted for it. Um, Until next week, he's been Aaron. Yep, I'm... Ah, uh, I didn't have anything. I ate a snickerdoodle. I ate a snickerdoodle. I've been Scott. I'm high on snickerdoodle. And we've been Bob's and Banthas. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you did next time. Did you hear
0: week. that uh, Jim Hill had heard of my previous podcast?
1: Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> How did that make you feel deep down inside? You know, I was sort of happy. Okay. I was happy for you. Uh, All right. I was like, okay, all right. Well, we're legit. We're legit just because we're We're half legit. We're half legit to quit. (laughs) We're drafting off of your success from (laughs) what was that? Like 10 years ago? Yeah, it was 25. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. All right. Well, yeah, just sit, sit back down for a little bit.